Hey friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is episode 11. I am your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. I am very excited for this week's guest. This week's guest is someone that I met virtually, never actually met in person, ended up figuring out that we worked at the same reptile rescue and our paths just managed just to miss each other, just really close. Um, But I'm excited to learn more about her experiences with the rescue and all the incredible animals she works with. So I would like to introduce the Reptivet, Emily. Grazita. Hey, Emily. Hey. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Of course. Or this morning or whenever people listen. It's it's (laughs) nighttime for us. But (laughs) so tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? So I am a second year veterinary student at the University of Illinois. Um, I founded Reptivet LLC. Um, a couple of years ago, it was originally called Eckelberg Exotics, but I am currently rebranding and I've been working on that. Um, I work with a variety of species. Um, at the moment, I have more gargoyle geckos than anything else, but my passion really lies in boas and micro geckos. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Yeah, and we'll get more into it for sure. <laughs> so um, with the rebranding, can you tell me a little bit about what Eckelberg Exotics was and then why you're moving to the Reptivet? So Eckelberg Exotics was a reference that no one got, basically, which I should have seen (laughs) coming. Um, But I am obsessed with the 1920s and the Great Gatsby. Um, My dog's name is actually Gatsby. Uh, So Eckelberg was short for TJ Eckelberg, which was the sign that uh, everyone would drive past in the book uh, between Mm -hmm. East and West Egg. With the Um, glasses that represented God. Yes. Yes, um, I know so, what you're talking about. But everyone always, of course, assumes, um, you know, Eckelberg's my last name or get confused when it's not. Um, and so I really should have saw that coming. But I was like, oh, but this is like, it'll kind of be an inside joke to myself. But then it wasn't really funny. So <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I think that's yeah. so fun. But now I that I understand to, it, now I'm like, yeah, yeah I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wanted to combine, I like um, the name Reptivet just because it kind of encompasses, um, you know, the fact that I'm going to be a veterinarian soon, I'm going to be focusing on reptiles and birds, probably, um, Mm -hmm. basically non-mammalian species, ideally, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of brings everything together. Yeah. So uh, for those who can't pick up on it, but that's screaming in the background, it's not her boyfriend, it is a a bird. Um, (laughs) I apologize. I'm sure he will fall asleep soon. (laughs) No, I don't. It doesn't bother me at all. There's been weirder animals interrupting this podcast. So (laughs) no worries. So um you know, you, you seem pretty focused on, on what you want to be doing, especially with focusing on non-mammals for reptile, uh, excuse me, for your veterinary practice, but kind of take me back. When did you really discover this love and passion for animals and, and how was that present when you were growing up? So my family are actually not animal people at all, which surprises mm-hmm. people. Um, I never had a dog growing up. Um, I had a hamster and a guinea pig and a parakeet and several of these animals I like would make poster presentations about why I should get said animal yeah excited at Christmas when I got you know Billy the hamster um so I would I made a little uh, dog walking business when I was in third grade actually I would go to door to door and knock on people's doors and say hey I'm Emily do you have a dog and then offer to walk (laughs) said dog for a dollar around the block and that's a good deal yeah. Uh, so, and I didn't know how good that was, but you know, yeah. I was just excited <laughs> to pet a dog. That's all I wanted to do, you know? And then by like sixth grade, I had several like, you know, 
house keys for people. I also really got into horses. Um, I'm also a crazy horse girl. And mm-hmm. I started training and showing a little bit and watching people's farms part-time, um, like throughout high school. Um, I didn't really discover reptiles as much until uh, undergrad. So I went to Miami University uh, in Ohio, which is near where Dominique and I almost crossed paths, but didn't yeah. at Arrowhead I think, I think this is, I think it's so funny that we were both I think you left Arrowhead right as I started working there. And it is such a small rescue. There's the odds of that happening is just insane. Right. So that's like really the first place I really got my feet wet with reptiles. My brother had had a leopard gecko, um, but that like was not significant in my life at all. But Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I fell in love with boa constrictors, like fell Mm -hmm. in love with them. Um, I was... I don't think I was ever afraid of them. And I quickly became the person to sign up for like the big aggressive constrictor side of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, Did I, you work with psycho? Yeah. So I, I was sick was foster actually. Oh my God. So psycho was my absolute favorite animal who was there. She got adopted. <laughs> really? Yeah, she got it. Okay. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, so psycho was a, <laughs> at the time of her adoption, she was 26 years old. This boa constrictor that like, it's almost like she chose one person not to bite. And at the time we were working there, I was the person she decided not to bite. And you must've been the person she decided not to bite when you were there. Mm-hmm. But not only was Psycho massive and uh, very defensive, but an absolute escape artist. Like she could get out of any enclosure you put her in. Yeah. So when I had her, so I actually got her, I brought her home like two weeks after she arrived at mm-hmm. the rescue because I had room for a second foster because my first foster was Beef Loaf. I don't know if you had ever met Beef Loaf. But yeah, I did meet Beef Loaf. He lives up to the name. loaf of yeah. a boa constrictor who was mm-hmm. a love. Um, I forget who was afraid of Beef Loaf, but Beef Loaf had bit somebody and they were like, good luck. And I was like, all right. Yeah, I never had an issue I think it was, um, it must have been Sasha must have been I don't remember because she got bit by everything yeah. <laughs> I feel like it was Kevin actually I don't know well we'll make fun of it and say it was Kevin gosh darn it Kevin Let's come on <laughs> <laughs> but I loved beef loaf and then so I had room for a second foster and brought psycho home and psycho was interesting I kept her in a 70 gallon with like all of my chemistry textbooks on top so luckily Mm -hmm. she never escaped but she definitely would look for opportunities Mm -hmm. Um, she was also actually my first snake bite so Mm. normally she didn't really bite me but she was actually my very again I didn't really get into reptiles until this and I was immediately drawn towards the big snakes and I had avoided getting bit um, until psycho and the problem was I was breeding rodents as well as keeping these snakes and I had roommates. And so all of this was in the same bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't super ideal. And the prey response was definitely there. And she ripped off like, I don't know, like roughly half of my fingernail. So that was really fun. It it grew back. Uh, You could not tell anymore, but I was like, oh, that didn't feel great. Yeah. (laughs) She's, she was a really big Bella too. Mm -hmm. Like she wasn't small. No. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. So crazy. I just, I still think it's so funny that you worked at Arrowhead. Um, so you got involved with Arrowhead while you were at, um, vet school, but before you go to vet school, when did you kind of think like, okay, I want to go the veterinary track of working with animals as opposed to potentially studying biology and becoming like a researcher or professor? 
So that was kind of interesting too, actually. It was one of those things where, you know, my parents growing up and whole family was like, you should be a vet because I was, you know, the animal person and I was into Mm -hmm. all animals and I loved them and I wanted to be around them all the time. Um, But I like never wanted to be a vet. In third grade, I wanted to be like a falconer. Um, (laughs) I wanted to be a horse trainer. I thought about being like a farrier. Like I was all over the board in terms of I wanted to work with animals, but I didn't want to be a vet. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember exactly why that was, but I just never did. But in college, like undergrad at Miami, my parents were like, well, like, you know, do a biology degree or something, obviously, but like, you know, try to get good grades, do all the veterinary school prerequisites, because then at least you're not closing that door in case you want to go. And I said, Mm -hmm. okay. So I went the pre-vet route um, with the intention that I would probably end up wanting to go to vet school, right? Um, I did a bunch of shadowing experiences. I did all the things. And then I wasn't really expecting to get in uh, the, the GPA average to get into vet school is like a 3.9. And I mm-hmm. did not have that. I mean, I had good grades, but I was not a straight A student. Um, and so I didn't expect to get in. And so I kind of started looking at other fields, um, like planning on getting jobs in other fields. Cause I was like, well, like, you know, maybe I'll apply again next year or something if I don't like what I'm doing. But then I got into two schools. And I was like shocked and maybe I shouldn't have been, I don't know, but I wasn't expecting to get in and I did. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't even want to do this. Like, when (laughs) did I ever really decide I wanted to do this? Like, I don't really like working in small animal practice. Like working with dogs and cats is not my thing. Like the Mm -hmm. clients are difficult sometimes. And I don't know, it seems very monotonous to me. And so I was like, I don't want to do this unless I can be a zoo vet and someone has to be a zoo vet. Someone essentially has to die out of the position and then 60 Mm -hmm. people apply for the job. And so that's not a guarantee, you know, if I'm going into $300,000 of debt, I don't really want to do that. And so my parents convinced me to defer for a year um, at at U of I, um, because that was the school I would rather go to out of the two. I also got into Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I deferred a year and worked for Covance in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, doing histopathology work um, for like, it's basically a third party research for pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I saw a ton of different tissues from, you know, rodents and dogs and monkeys and pigs and all sorts of things. Um, It was my job to, you know, help with necropsies and then trim up the tissues, embed them in wax. And I was a microtomist. So I would make all of the slides for pathologists to look at. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I was getting bored of that. And I didn't really like the chain uh, upwards. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll be a vet. I like this reptile thing that I've started to kind of get to kind of get into here. Um, I'm going to go for it and see what happens. So Mm -hmm. here I am. (laughs) So at that time when you're like, thinking about going to vet school and like making the decision to do it, what was your, like, were you, were you working with a pretty large collection of animals after first getting started with Arrowhead? So I had to give up the rodent breeding, um, because we weren't allowed to have, um, like any live rodents in our homes because mm-hmm. you could, uh, have, you know, transmission of pathogens between, like your animals at home and the lab animals, even though I didn't really work with hmm. live animals in the place. So um, I no longer had my big boas because those were fosters. I didn't have beef loaf and psycho anymore, but I was really into wanting to get another boa, wanting to maybe start. I hadn't decided if I wanted to be a breeder or not yet, but I at least wanted to get back into it. Um, And so I bought a, there's a really cool reptile store in Madison or just outside Madison. I can't remember called reptile rapture. 
And so I lived like 20 minutes from there and I would be in there all the time. And all of a sudden I see this beautiful boa uh, and they're Dumeril's boas. And I had never seen one before and I fell in love with them. And for like mm-hmm. months on and on, I was thinking about these boas and I was like, you know what? I need one. And so I walk in about to buy the snake and it's gone like from the next day. Mm-hmm. And um, I, my friend was with me and he knew the owner and the owner was like, well, I have one in the back. I might sell. I don't know. She's a hold back. And uh, he ended up selling her to me and I was in love and I was like, I need to, I need more of these. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to get into reptiles. Um, and that was actually one of the stimuli for me to leave my old job is because, you know, it's expensive to have, get, I wasn't even supposed to have frozen thawed rodents in my, in my apartment at the time. Hmm. Um, so I mean, obviously I could get away with it. It's not the same thing as live. Um, it's kind of a technicality, but I was like, you know what? I want to do more of this. Um, so this job is not what's right for me and what would I right. rather do? And this seemed like a pretty good option. Mm-hmm. So when you um, are getting the uh, the Dumeril's boas, what was it that drew you to Dumeril's over other species of boas? So I had really only worked with red-tailed boas because that's what was really at the rescue um, mm-hmm. in terms of boas. There's, they also had ball pythons and, you know, colubrids and things. But I had really been drawn to the red-tails. Um, but then seeing another species that, like, I love how they've got their kind of saddle backs. And this baby in particular had a crazy amount of orange and pink. And even now she's like two and a half. And she still has retained a lot of that color. A lot of it kind of goes away with age but I was really into that color pattern splashing mm-hmm. and you know the morph craze is still intense right now you know with all the ball pythons and boas and all sorts of things but this right. was like just a you know dumerals don't have morphs so they mm-hmm. just have their wild type with varying amounts of saturation in their color you know whether it be their browns or their oranges or their peaches or whatever and I was just so drawn to this wild type animal that I was like I I don't know. Like it was something about them. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting because um, you seem to have gotten into them before over the last year, there's been like a huge boom in interest for these Dumeril's boas. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's crazy to me. Um, I mean, I bought each of my boas for like 200 bucks a piece because um, I have a pair of them and obviously they're still too young for breeding, but I have a male and a female each of them I got for, you know, maybe 200 bucks. And now they're like Mm -hmm. six, 700 bucks as babies, you know, let alone adults. And so, I mean, I think that this is kind of the beginning of a trend because it's happened with some other species as well, where we've had this big morph craze and I don't think the morph craze is ever going to go away, Mm -hmm. but I think that people are starting to realize, wait, like we didn't need to dump all these other beautiful species, um, that are still, you know, great pets and they're beautiful animals. Um, you know, a ball python morph does not trump like, you know, a, a beautiful wild type animal of some other species and right. they're great pets. Um, mm-hmm. do girls love being kept in racks, which is fun because they're ground boas, you know, they don't climb. So I don't, they, you know, I had, I had my female in a tank for a little while before I was changing to racks. And she went on a hunger strike because she didn't feel, you know, secure enough or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, they love to just, you know, wait under the leaves or whatever else because they're ambush hunters. Um, so they're really easy. You know, boas are all garbage disposals, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that basically this trend towards doomerals again is, you know, 
hopefully to me is indicating that people are starting to look at you know other species again other than just imperator morphs if they like boas or whatever else yeah absolutely so so that kind of brings us in so you're talking about using rack systems and stuff tell me a little bit more about your current collection and then how you keep like what's your preferred style are you trending towards more rack systems generally so I have a lot of combination um Mm -hmm. Most of my enclosures for my animals are bioactive. Um, they are for all of my geckos. Okay. Um, so I have a lot of gargoyle geckos and I have some strophorous geckos, which are more arid species. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about those because those are just the coolest. <laughs> yeah, they're my favorite. I'm obsessed with them. Um, but then all of my snake species are ground dwellers. So um, I have other than, so I have some Taiwanese beauty snakes and those are also in a um, semi-bioactive Mm-hmm. Um, so I keep my ball pythons and doom rolls boas in racks because they, those are species that both, you know, are known to do pretty well in them because they don't climb. Um, mm-hmm. I know, you know, lots of people will keep, you know, anything in a rack, you know, like whether it be an, a bow imperator or, you know, anything that's arboreal or whatever else, um, because they can survive in racks, they can, um, they can reproduce, but they aren't necessarily happy in a rack or I don't want to anthropomorphize, but they, they are not thriving in a rack versus mm-hmm. just surviving. Um, so I like racks because they save me a lot of space. I have mm-hmm. 850 square foot condo. Yeah. Um, and I like to keep all of my animals in one room uh, other than quarantine, obviously. Um, so that helps me save space that way. Um, but everything else is in bioactives pretty much as big as I can afford. Um, everything, all of my adult gargoyle geckos um, are in roughly 40 gallon vertical tanks um, that are fully planted. Um, and even my racks, actually, I've been playing with bi- like semi-bioactive racks. Mm-hmm. So they don't have plants in them or lights in them or anything, but they are the same dirt mix I use for the other systems, um, humidity dependent for the species. And I have isopods in them. It's actually been working pretty well, um, especially for winter. You know, I live in Illinois and it gets pretty dry. It is naturally like 5% humidity in my condo, mm-hmm. even with humidifiers running. So it actually helps keep a lot of the um, moisture in the substrate and keeps humidity where I want it without having to like spray paper towels or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's working pretty well. I still have to spot clean a little bit and I have to mix up once a week all of the substrate so that, you know, towards the back, and, you know, the heating spots, um, that's all dry by the, you know, by the next week. So I mix it all up again. Um, but I've kind of liked how that's worked as well. So what is in that um, mix that you're using for your substrate? So I use a mixture of topsoil, peat moss, sphagnum, charcoal, and plus or minus a little bit of sand. Mm-hmm. Um, topsoil is typically the best for plants. And I like the... Um, I like the texture of it. Um, peat moss is long story short, long story short, cheap, um, and it's so it's a good it's a good filler. Um, charcoal you can also use pieces of newspaper shredded because it's a carbon source. Mm-hmm. Um, I just bought a cheap bag of charcoal and throw a little bit of that in, um, and then sphagnum holds moisture really well, so I like to throw a little bit of that in the mix as well. But it's usually about like a seventy percent to eighty percent topsoil and then maybe 10% peat 10% mm-hmm. other stuff so with your 
veterinary classes, is there discussion about rack systems versus vivariums or similar? Is that something you're talking about at school at all? Not even remotely. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is no requirement at the moment really from the AVMA, which is the overarching veterinary association, um, requiring exotics um, education. Uh, University of Illinois is actually known as being a really good exotic school, mm-hmm. but that's because we have um, a wildlife medical clinic um, that students can participate at um, and deal with wildlife cases and things. I personally am not, I don't really have time with all of my own animals, but mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity. And we have a variety of electives. Um, so even in those electives, there may be something down the line where there's, there might be a occasionally taught reptile class, but usually it's about just, okay, like here's some basics of exotics. And so it, reptiles might be one day. And so when you're calling covering all of reptiles in one day, you know, you don't, you, miss. Hear, yeah, you don't even hear the word rack. Right. Um, I am president of the non-traditional species club. Mm-hmm. And we, with the start of COVID started a newsletter um, to send out to our members and to the zoom ed faculty, because we could no longer really have in-person lectures and wet mm-hmm. labs and things like that. And in those, uh, all of our members write, you know, some article about something every month and you know, that includes me. And so I've written, you know, some articles about racks and a bioactive series and things like that, but it's definitely not a part of normal curriculum. Right. So with that, with there being no um, specific requirement of how to educate about exotics, how, what's the transition like from graduating med school to be, excuse me, vet school to becoming an exotic veterinarian? Like, are you in need of getting a few um, internships? Are there specific classes you have to take for some sort of certification with exotics? So long story short, the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you graduate veterinary school, Um, you are just graduating as a doctor of veterinary medicine. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no degree that's specific in equine medicine or dog medicine or anything else. Mm -hmm. If you want to be board certified in something like surgery or um, internal medicine or pathology, you can do that. And that's additional internships and residencies and things. And you have to pass a board certification. And mm-hmm. that exists also for, you know, reptile medicine or exotic companion animal medicine or whatever else, but it's definitely not required. So when I graduate, you know, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be a doctor of veterinary medicine and then I can go off and do whatever I please. Um, what I'm ready for will, you know, vary on my experiences. Um, so I've definitely sought out different experiences and externships with, um, exotics clinics and um, different places that I've worked, such as Reptech. Um, I also traveled down to Reptilandia in Costa Rica in November for a few days, which was fun. Um, so definitely different experiences that will help me and, you know, choosing the electives that will teach me about reptiles and things, but mm-hmm. there's basically no requirement. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So can you tell me a little bit more about your experience um, down in Costa Rica? Because I remember seeing those pictures and it just seemed incredible. Yeah. So that was kind of a fun, almost spur of the moment trip. Um, I got to know Quetzal Dwyer pretty well um, online and um, kind of by chance. And he started his own zoo down there, Reptilandia, um, like 20 years ago or so. And he's currently... um, 
building another reptile zoo in Texas right now that mm-hmm. uh, they're hoping is going to open in the spring-ish. Um, I haven't heard an update on that in a month or two, but hopefully. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'm kind of bored and I kind of want to see this zoo before you know you are more focused in Texas and not really there often mm-hmm. enough. And so I flew down over my Thanksgiving break. Um, I got all of my, you know, COVID testing done, um, which we have to do twice a week for U of I anyways, we have to get tested. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Um, Cause so are you maintaining on per- in person classes? So I think Illinois was basically trying to prove a point that we could have school um, nothing was really, uh, like required to be in person, but they always wanted to give that option. Mm-hmm. And so they developed a test, actually the, the diagnostic lab at the vet school developed this spit test that, um, when everyone was still getting those nose tests, I don't know if that's even still a thing. Not sure. I, I don't even know, <laughs> but, uh, so that's been a requirement of everyone, you know, undergrads, grads, faculty, staff, everyone, has had to get tested twice a week throughout the entire school year. Um, hmm. And there are pretty serious repercussions if you, if you don't do that. I actually still have to do that, even though I've been vaccinated for about two months now. Wow. Um, it's just a requirement that U of I has um, hmm. because they wanted to prove that, you know, we'd have some sort of lower rates of infection or whatever else, but, you know, people are still going out and partying you know, an undergraduate land. So yes. yeah, I live on, uh, <laughs> I live about a half a mile from the college campus I just graduated from. And every night I lay in bed and hear the parties and I'm like, hmm, okay, cool. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Well, but getting yeah. off of COVID. <laughs> Cause yeah, hmm. little tangent. <laughs> well, just It's okay. <laughs> but yeah. So anyways, I was fully tested. I've been, you know, pretty responsible. And I was like, you know what, like, I'm going to go to Costa Rica. And my parents were like, excuse me, what you're doing? What (laughs) Um, you're going internationally during a pandemic. And it wasn't getting there that I was worried about, or they were worried about it was getting back. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what if some, you know, something could change on a dime, you know, like, all of a sudden, there could be a new executive order saying, no travel whatsoever, you know, back into the country or to the country or whatever. Right. But I was like, all right, I'm going for three and a half days. Um, and so I have a, I had a COVID test within that, those three days be negative Mm -hmm. because I tested right before I left. And then the test didn't come back for another, you know, 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'll have had a test in the last three days. Um, I have all of this paperwork. Um, I'm, you know, I wrote it off as a work trip because, technically I'm gaining experiences that will help me, you know, with my own business as well as my education. Mm-hmm. So I went down um, and it worked out. Luckily, <laughs> um, I had no trouble getting there or getting back, which was awesome. Um, and basically I had, you know, the, the keys to everything and anything, you know, I saw the Komodo dragon, Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, we fed her a chicken. I saw all of the, um, I worked with a lot of venomous there. Well, I say worked with uh, very loosely. I didn't Mm -hmm. really work super closely with them, but we were working with some um, Bushmasters that one of the biggest problems there is that they've got a lot of ticks Mm -hmm. because, you know, you're an equatorial country. It's very wet and moist and, and, and very humid and 
warm. Wow, that was a lot of the same word over and over, basically. I mean, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It made sense to me. And very wet all the time. And so Mm -hmm. it's really hard to keep the ticks at bay. Um, And so what do you then do with a tick load that's repetitive on Bushmasters, like that are full grown adults, you know, that are then very stressed on top of that because you know this is a zoo so people Mm -hmm. will tap on the glass or whatever Mm -hmm. else and so then this parasite load is starting to weigh them down as well so what do you do and the answer becomes okay you've got to catch the snake you can't really touch the snake we didn't you know that you've got hooks and you get into the box and what you do is we would spray down the enclosures with you know tick sprays and things like that um they also had big papuan pythons that we did take out and hand pick off you know jars full of of ticks and things it's not because they're not paying attention or because they're neglecting these animals no it's it's where they are yeah they they add up so quickly Mm -hmm. and are they using any sort of like outdoor enclosures yeah so pretty much everything is an outdoor enclosure or something that's um there's there's no buildings that are just totally inside um, mm-hmm. There's lots of stuff that's like, you know, there's shelter, shelters overhead. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously lots of speed, most species have something over their, their, over the top, you know, so they can't climb out or whatever else. Right. Um, but still there's, there's big enough mesh that, you know, little ticks and stuff can get through all sorts of bugs and things. Um, luckily, most of the species that are there are Costa Rican or, or Central American. Um, so they are used to the weather and things, but the parasite load is genuinely a problem. So it's interesting to see, to see that mm-hmm. and how that works in theory. Yeah, that's, that's really, I, I remember seeing your pictures and being like, damn, that just looks so cool. Yeah, um, it was a ton of fun. And obviously yeah. there's the Bolins pythons, which that's are what I was going to ask. Incredible. I was going to ask, I know that you worked with the Bolins. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite species that you worked with when you were down there? Was it the Bolins? Cause I remember you being very excited about those. Yeah, so the Bolins are super cool. Um, and there's just something about them that, you know, you can't really describe until you meet them. Um, I don't know if it's an intelligence thing or like, the, but the way they feel is really interesting. So they're super soft, um, mm-hmm. but then when they shed, their shed feels like sandpaper, hmm. which is really interesting. Um, okay, really fast. Keep talking. My cat is doing something she's not supposed to. I'm listening. <laughs> That's valid. Um, so I really did like the, uh, the Bolin's pythons, um, which I expected to, um, but I also kind of started to fall for like eyelash vipers. Um, mm. I'm not a venomous person per se, you know, I, I kind of worked with the Gila monsters a little bit at Reptech, but otherwise have not really worked with venomous species and have kind of just I mean, not avoided on purpose, but it seems like a lot of hassle and mm-hmm. it's not something I'm passionate about. So I just haven't done anything with it. But Reptilandia has tons of venomous species and tons of, you know, venomous animals. And so literally in Quetzal's house, which he lives at the zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really cool. So like in there was all of these baby eyelash vipers and in, in their own little like drawers and things. Um, so, you know, there was within reach of you know the of the kitchen table is you know 50 venomous baby snakes which was super fun um but they're just really adorable and super brightly colored and their strike response at literally anything 
is just very exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think I'm ever going to still be a venomous person, um, but they're pretty cool. Yeah. I definitely have an appreciation. I'm in the same boat. I have an appreciation, but not really a desire. Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned that you worked with RepTech. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you did there? Yeah. So I had known Forrest a little bit um, online, not super well, um, but we had talked a little bit on Instagram and different platforms. And I was an avid listener of his podcast, um, the Unfiltered Reptiles podcast. And so when he passed away um, last year in March, um, it was obviously a shock to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he was super young. And so I reached out to them because they're in Indianapolis. And so I'm about a two hour drive from them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, I have reptile experience. Do you need help? And they, the answer was basically yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I showed up and was just expecting to like volunteer for a weekend. I was like, you know, let me, it was, this was probably just under a month after forest passed, maybe about a month after forest passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to show up for like a three-day weekend because again, I was in school at this time, you know, I was mm-hmm. in my fourth quarter of vet school and vet school is no joke. I don't really have time for yeah, not at all. vet school. And it had just been switched to this fully online curriculum and everyone was thrown for a loop and no one was sure what was going on, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to show up. And so I show up for this three-day weekend and um Desiree was awesome um she she put me up in a hotel and stuff and she and Steven offered me a job and they were like look like we could use the help for a little while like and I was like yeah let's do it Mm -hmm. and so for the next and from you know March through June um, I was there for three nights and I worked like three and a half days um managing the facility um a bit I'd clean all the snakes and the crocs and the monitors and all sorts like you know everything they had there i Mm -hmm. would take care of and you know so i worked full time because it was a kind of 11 hour days and so i do three and a half days of vet school and i do three and a half days of rep tech and i told myself that i'd study you know in the mornings or something but i slept never do as soon as i you know got home and woke up 30 minutes before i had to be there and you know, it was a lot of work, um, but it was definitely worth it in terms of the experiences I got. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely got very stressed out, um, especially towards the end, just because of all of the um, school that I was then, you know, falling behind on inevitably. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the drive, you know, I was driving four hours a week um, to be there as well. And, you know, it was, it was awesome because I, you know, does put me up in the hotel every weekend and, everything else. Um, but then by the end of June, um, I had also had a summer research program that I was a part of, um, through mm-hmm. Illinois that I had been committed to since January. And so I was also doing that full time. So mm-hmm. it switched immediately from vet school, halftime rep tech, halftime to lab work, halftime rep tech, halftime. I didn't really get yeah. a break. And so by that time I was exhausted mentally and Mm -hmm. physically and Desiree was kind of back up for working full-time in the facility as well. And so she was able to take, take over again and I was able Mm -hmm. to stay home, Yeah, (laughs) but definitely worth it. I had a great experience. Um, I was exposed to so many animals. It was a good time. 
Yeah. That's if that's, if there's a collection where you want to work with a lot of things, that's definitely the place to do it for real. Mm -hmm. So for going back to vet school a bit, so how did these experiences, um, like, how do you work those into like, Hey, get me a job as a veterinarian after you graduate. Is this something that people will look for, for getting you into an exotic position? So the thing with veterinarians right now is that there are far more positions open than there are new vets. And so we are in a very positive mark. Like there are plenty of jobs open for me theoretically when I graduate. Um, That's nice to know. That's a good feeling. For sure. Especially right now. (laughs) We are in demand and that feels great. Um, And when it comes to exotics, um, there are, there's such an exponential pull and increase in the exotic pet market right now, especially in reptiles. Um, Reptiles Mm -hmm. are increasing um, in, in households more than any other type of pet um, in the United States, at least Hmm. by far. And so, and additionally, uh, people are more and more considering over the decades, their animals to be a part of their family instead of just a possession or you know, just an animal. So more and more people keep, you know, let their dogs sleep in bed with them than they did 15 years ago. And mm-hmm. that's starting to come over into their exotic animals as well. And since there's not exotic specific education for the most part in vet schools, um, a lot of vets just won't see exotics. And exotics can mean as, you know, a rabbit or it can mm-hmm. mean a snake or it can mean a ferret or a bird. It can mean all of those things, you know, so people don't always think of rabbits as, you know, exotics, but they are considered mm-hmm. to be exotics. So because the vets- only things that aren't exotics is like a cat and a dog. Yep. Yep. For small animal. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's like, you know, cows and horses and things, but that's a different world that I'm not mm-hmm. a part of. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Anything that's not a cat or a dog is considered an exotic. And so without the training, lots of people don't feel comfortable seeing them at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's a plus if you are willing to see them in terms of positions that are only exotics though, um, there's some limitations because mm-hmm. more and more exotics only practices are opening, but not at the, at the rate at which there's a need. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's more of a need than there are exotics only practices. So those are still opening up. So long story short, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get an exotics only job straight out of school. Mm-hmm. Eventually I'd like to be a practice owner and I'd like to see only exotics and have like one or two associates that sees cats and dogs, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's going to happen right away. I think that I've got a pretty good chance because of getting a position um, right out, right out of school, hopefully crossing my fingers. Yeah. If uh, anyone's just, looking to hire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anyone's looking to hire and then, you know, in two years, hit mm-hmm. me up, please. Um, uh, I think that I'm, I have a pretty good standing in terms of that, just because I have a lot of diverse experiences Mm-hmm. Um, on, t- you know, on top of the quantity, I'm right. obviously very exotics focused. Um, but <laughs> really, we'll I didn't just notice. Have to see. <laughs> yeah, you know, just in case you weren't sure, based on the macaw <laughs> in the background and, um, and the dozens of snakes and lizards. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> so, real. did you? Um, what was your motivation for going for veterinary school and becoming a veterinarian versus looking at being a vet tech? So, I used to be a vet tech. Um, full-time on and off both in at the end of high school and during summer breaks I would go back to my home clinic in Connecticut Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also became a tech part-time in Ohio Um, and I was I enjoyed it but there's even 
fewer jobs for techs that are exotics only versus mm-hmm. being a vet. Um, techs are usually more general generalized. And I hate to say it this way, but techs don't make very much money at all for the amount of work that they no, have. No, yeah, it's absolutely true. And I knew that I was capable of getting into school or at least had a, a, a good chance at getting into vet school. And I'm also very oriented on, I like to be my own boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like running my own company. I, I literally love doing my taxes. <laughs> like, oh, I'm oh one my of God. Those people. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I really like all of the, being able to decide all the nitty gritty details. Mm-hmm. And you obviously can't do that as a tech. Right. Um, you know, you can be a manager of some sort, um, but you can't, you can't be the big guy. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I figured, you know, I, if I'm a practice owner, I don't even have to practice full time. If I want, I could, you know, manage the practice half time and just see animals half time and still do reptiles. And that would be my perfect world. I think going back to vet school in general, what's the general, um, like gender breakdown in vet school. So it, in my class, we have 130 people Mm -hmm. and it is, I think, 83 or 84% female, okay. um, which is a huge difference from what it was like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, at U of I, there is a big hallway with the class, you know, the senior class portraits of everyone who's, every class that's graduated. And, you know, the first, however many years, many years, um, you know, it's, it's all classes of men. And then there was like one woman and then there was like two women. And then there was mm-hmm. like 10 women and it gradually increased until there's now um, this divide. And it's kind of the opposite in medical school, like human medical school um, mm-hmm. is that it's, it's primarily dominated by men. And there's a lot of theories behind this. <laughs> um, oh, we are, women are stereotypically, um, more nurturing and and motherly and things and caring about animals and things and we should be charitable because we love animals um we can't take care of your animals unless we get paid but anyways (laughs) um yeah just a subtle plug there just a reminder (laughs) um we really don't make very much money um Mm -hmm. and to give you an idea of that you know i'm going to be paying off my loans for the you know the next 20 years and i'll be living like a student still for the first 10 of those or so So it's not all glamour. Um, Medical school students make a whole lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. It's actually harder to get into veterinary school than it is to get into medical school. Um, That's not because it's not because people aren't um, like qualified, but it's because there are so many fewer spots available in veterinary schools than there are in medical schools. There's only like 30 veterinary schools. There may I think there was one that kind of just opened up. So this number maybe one off um but I'm well, then sure. I don't believe it unless you have exact <laughs> numbers for me Emily <laughs> I'm sorry but it's significant one is significant when there's only 30 vet schools in the entire country right and there are hundreds of of medical schools in the country mm-hmm. you know every state has multiple right mm-hmm. and so there are a whole lot more applicants that those schools can take um and so I think the average GPA to get into medical school is like 3.5 or 3.6 or something but to get into veterinary school the average is a 3.9 because you know for for the people that want to get in 
there's a lot fewer spots. So then within medical school itself, oh my God, I keep saying medical school within veterinary school itself. Are you noticing that there are a lot of people who are privately owning pets or is it more just people with like cats and dogs? Um, in terms of exotics? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So there's definitely a larger proportion of people that maybe just don't maybe have more than just a dog or a cat. Um, mm-hmm. Like I mentioned before, there's more and more people that are, that own particularly reptiles. It's the fastest growing pet industry um, mm-hmm. out of, out of any of other animals. Um, I think, you know, fish are number one um, mm-hmm. and dogs and cats are number two and three, but I believe reptiles is right after that at right. this point above birds or anything else. Um, and so that creates a big need um, for, for more people to at least feel comfortable seeing a snake say like, okay, this is the heart isn't the first third of the body and look for, look in the mouth for upper respiratory disease, because that's one of the most common things you're going to see. And this Mm -hmm. is what a snake mite is. And even if you just know that much, you can at least start or know what questions to ask if it is or isn't one of those things, Mm -hmm. because I'm going to tell you right now, more than half of the people in, in, in my class, probably more than three quarters of the people in my class don't know just those few things that I just told you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it, it's just the very, if we could just get the very basics of, you know, uh, of exotic companion animal medicine, then I think it would help a lot because mm-hmm. um, we've got to be able to keep up with the demand Um, and if we don't, then it's just a market that's not being utilized. Right. And is that a conversation that you guys are, you're having with the school or trying to bring more attention to in your classes? I would say yes. Um, and Illinois, like I said, is, is known for being a good exotic school because of our wildlife clinic. And we have a very good zoological medicine department, um, that Mm -hmm. we see, you know, the school sees exotic animals. They see all of mine whenever there are issues, um, And we have a very strong club following and membership. Um, We just started a wildlife conference. My club did. Uh, We had our first wildlife university conference in December and we are setting up for this fall as well. That was super successful. And the more engagement we get, the more the school starts to notice that that's the direction we want to go in. And other schools across the country are starting to develop more exotics, you know, whether it be electives or externships or whatever else, um, because some schools, you know, maybe have one exotics elective and not much else. Right. When we talk about exotics, obviously your first love is reptiles, but you also have a pet macaw is it yeah he's a military macaw a military macaw okay so tell me a little bit about him and how how you got into the whole bird world because i feel like the line between bird people and reptile people is very blurred yes so i was actually a bird person before i was a reptile person which is Mm -hmm. seldom known um i had parakeets when i was little and i fell in love with them um and then in high school there was a quaker parrot that was dropped off at my veterinary clinic Um, And then we learned that it was illegal. Um, It's not illegal to own, but it's illegal to sell or give to somebody else because they're invasive and make uh, nests on power lines and start fires, et cetera. Yes. (laughs) All of a sudden I have this little Quaker parrot 
And my entire, again, my family are not animal people. And our whole family falls in love with this thing. Mm-hmm. And then it dies after a week. Oh, um, man. <laughs> yeah. So that was a roller coaster. And after that, I was like, all right, I need another Quaker parrot someday. Today mm-hmm. is not that day. I'm in college. Um, I've got parents are a lot to take care of. Yeah. Um, but I was like, someday I'll rescue another parrot. Throughout undergrad, I also worked um, on bird banding research with Dr. Dave Russell. And we would band in Houston Woods, which is a little patch in the middle of farmland, basically, of territory where migratory birds move every year from, you know, Canada to Central America. And the same birds will show up, you know, the same bands on on those birds, you know, they're the same ones, uh, will come through every year. And it's super Mm -hmm. cool. So I really got into that. And I took ornithology class and things like that. And then I left for a while. Um because I I left school and and was doing stuff in Wisconsin. And then my horse trainer in Wisconsin had this bird and this bird is Miro, which is my bird now. Um, So he had had birds growing up. And so he adopted this bird from Feathered Friends um, Rescue, which is a bird only rescue. Um, He had been dumped on the side of the road in a box. Hmm. And he is an endangered macaw. Um, and he is a lovely animal. I could not still have a bird in vet school at all if he if they were not Vero. Um, he's usually very good. He's obviously a little squawky at bedtime because he's like, no, 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 no. Like, but he is usually very quiet during the day. Um, he's very pleasant. He is a good eater. Um, he does not know how to fly. And so I can keep him, you know, out of my hair all of the time. Um, mm-hmm. But usually he's very good. He's, he's out whenever I'm home. But anyways, my horse trainer was moving and could not take this bird into his new apartment. To be honest, I'm not really convinced he really tried to find an apartment. He was kind of done with this bird after 18 months because, you know, even though he's a good bird. Birds are a lot. Birds are a lot. And a know? macaw <laughs> is just insane. Yeah. And so like the screaming, like a macaw's scream can travel for two blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're loud. And so if you don't have a house or whatever else, um, it's really difficult. And if they don't get the attention they want, they scream more because, mm-hmm. you know, then, and if you yell back, if you scream at them back, cause you're mad, well, that's a great thing for them. They love yeah. that. That's exciting. <laughs> that's a good day. Mm-hmm. They got a rise out of you. So the only thing you can do is totally ignore them. And that's very difficult for most personalities of people, including my own, but you know, yeah. <laughs> I value my life. So I don't mm-hmm. want to piss the thing off. And it can be difficult to, to bring new people into your life with the macaw. Yeah, it can be. And he likes people. Like he, he's not one of those birds that gets really mad when somebody comes over. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, he doesn't let anybody touch him. Mm. So I was very lucky that he didn't get a ton of attention. I don't think from my, from my old trainer, just because my old trainer was out and about all the time. He was a very successful horse trainer. And so he was mm-hmm. out of his house a ton and no one else lived with him. And so when I first met Vero, which at the time he was Vera, um, we mm. just, he was just assumed girl, but never DNA tested until I did a couple of years Is ago. Is that the only way to tell? Yeah. DNA for, for military macaws. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and so he did not get a ton of attention and so the first time I held my hand out to him he just hopped right up and started talking to me and it was super cute and so he asked me to take this bird and I was like no 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 no, I'm going to vet school (laughs) um I've got stuff to do in my life that doesn't include a macaw and he was like please and I was like no he was (laughs) like well what if it's just a trial run 
and you know you can give him back like he can go to my parents if need be yeah Um, and I was like all right and I still have him two years later (laughs) (laughs) and he's great um he's really fun there are some days where I'd like to strangle him but of course I would not um yeah it doesn't look good on like a a vet application no not it's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do yeah but I mean the things I give like he has his own bedroom he has he sleeps for 12 hours a night which they're really supposed to have because they are um they they're an equatorial species and so they're used Mm -hmm. to 12 hours on 12 hours off you know every day Mm -hmm. and so otherwise they think it's spring and when they think it's spring imagine so they're they have the intelligence of a three or four year old child Mm-hmm. So imagine a three-year-old, three or four-year-old child with a sex drive that can scream. <laughs> yeah. And that's what a macaw who thinks it's spring is like. And so mm-hmm. if I have, if I, they get 12 hours of sleep, it's better, you know, mm-hmm. not perfect, but it's better. So he has his own bedroom with blackout curtains. <laughs> he has a nighttime cage and he has a daytime PlayStation where he is whenever I'm home, which has been a whole lot during COVID. I'm very lucky in the fact that he's not super destructive. I can leave him alone for five minutes and nothing tragic has happened yet, you know, in Mm -hmm. two years. And obviously you don't want to leave them alone for very long, but um, he is very well behaved for any bird that I've ever met in my life. And is there a concern for like when you do get a job as a vet and we're not in COVID times of like being away from him for longer? Yes and no. So when I first got him, um, vet school was, well, first it was the summer and I worked full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was home for most of the day and he, I had upstairs neighbors. We lived in a house, but we had upstairs neighbors and they complained more about the dog than they did about the bird mm-hmm. just because the, the dog was not adjusting super well to a new place yet. And so he really wasn't that bad to be alone all the time because he was used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't make it great, but it makes it okay ish for, Mm -hmm. you know, for him, he's not one that gets super wound up. Also when I move, because I I don't intend on staying exactly where I am right now. um, I want to move some to a house or somewhere where I can have an outdoor aviary. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned he doesn't know how to fly. That's probably because he was clipped as a baby or something. There's no, you know, skeletal abnormality or clipping that prevents him from physically being able to. He probably just- He just doesn't know. Yeah, he doesn't know. And so, but they can be taught. And I'd love to give him an outdoor aviary somewhere that he could be out at least a good portion of the year um, where he can have more play space and things like that. I've also doubled the size of the original cage he has. I mean, to give you an idea- I don't have a house right now. I live in a condo. It's a 12 unit condo complex. And I mean, knock on wood, like no one's ever complained in two years mm-hmm. about him. Um, if he yells, it's usually the middle of the day when everyone's at work anyways. And, mm-hmm. and do your neighbors know about your animals? They've got to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, the reptiles probably not so much, maybe a little bit if they look mm-hmm. in a window or something. Um, yeah, which is like not the neighbors you want to have anyways. So <laughs> No, but I am on the first floor. And so if a window's open, like, I've, okay. you know, my yeah. big tank room, there's tons of lights on with the bioactives mm-hmm. and stuff. So someone's mm-hmm. at least got a glance over as they're driving past the window. They definitely know about the bird because you can't hide that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, we actually, my, my condo actually caught on fire the first week I lived there. Jeez. Um, yeah. So the, the people who had lived here before me had been renters that I, I, that I had, um, 
I had bought from the, I bought this place from the owner, but the owner had rented it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the people who had lived here before were not the most upstanding citizens. And I heard the day that it caught on fire, I hold, heard a whole lot of stories from neighbors <laughs> about how they had caught, they had caught the whole building on fire once. And uh, they took turns getting arrested every other month or something. And geez, yeah. so they clearly didn't do a lot of cooking and I have a gas stove and there were some plastic like pans or sheets. I don't know what, because they were melted by the time I saw them, but I was just trying to preheat my oven to cook myself something for the first time since mm-hmm. I lived there. And all of a sudden there are flames and black smoke. New <laughs> so, homeowner things that you just don't yeah. want to deal with. So I panic and I, you know, open everything and it was in August. So luckily it was okay outside, but I've got this terrified 120 pound dog by the collar. And then this green pigeon on my arm <laughs> that everyone's like, all right, this is a new kid in town. Yeah. <laughs> the problems is she going to cause, but I think that they're okay with me because I'm clearly a lot better of a neighbor than the old people were. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh they my definitely goodness. know about those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and those are hard ones to hide. So, you know, you're uh, in veterinary school. How much longer do you have in that right now? So I have another two years. Um, okay. How long most- is the program? four years total. Okay. Um, so I am about halfway through. I've got um, another seven weeks of this year. And then um, I've got, this is my last summer because then once we mm-hmm. start third year, there's no summer next year, but we start clinical rotations our fourth quarter. So in one year I will start clinical rotations and that goes all the way through till graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just super no break exciting. for Christmas. It doesn't matter. Like you're yeah. wherever you got to be. Um, so that'll be exciting, but also exhausting. Um, yeah, two more years, unless I do internship and residency, in which case I'll, it'll be three years more than that. But I'm Jeez, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm wow. trying not to think about that right now because yeah. I don't think mm-hmm. I'm going to go that route. I'm a little tired. <laughs> yeah. And it's, ho- it's so hard to plan for the future in that regard. Like I, I get it. I just graduated college and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I hate college, yada, yada. And now that I'm out, I'm like, maybe I should go to grad school. Maybe I should do, you know, it just, it just and I puts like things having in perspective. A year off, you know, like yeah. if you take a year off school, cause I was burnt out after undergrad. And mm-hmm. then I took the year off and I was like, I never want to see school again. And then I took the year off and I was like, you know, like I could do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I felt this way. I don't know if you feel the same way, but for so long you identify as a student. And then when you're not anymore, it's like, there's something missing. There's that. But then also once you go back, you're like, oh, like I've got so much more, like, I mean, you feel like more of an adult, believe Mm -hmm. it or not. Um, Because all of a sudden you've got a different perspective on, okay, like your whole life is not centered around your grades. Like that Mm -hmm. doesn't actually matter in the real world. And so when you go back to it, you don't quite stress out the same way. It's not like I don't care about my grades, but it's not all life or death, you know, over two points on a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, Cause it definitely feels that way when you're in the midst of it. And, and I didn't study, you know, I wasn't in vet school or something that serious, but I was in a very difficult like honors program. And, and now I look back and I'm like, I don't even remember what I got in that class, but I remember crying over it. And I was like, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. So mm-hmm. it matters so much in, in the moment, but not, you know, it's, it's not so bad. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you obviously have this professional track of working with animals, but then you have your own private collection with what you're working with. How do you balance um, still being engaged with the animals you have at home while also spending all your time 
learning about caring for other people's animals? Because I can imagine that can get kind of exhausting. Yeah. So the biggest thing that has helped me is my bioactive enclosures for sure. Mm -hmm. So I have a mist king. I have, I have two of them actually for the two different sizes of, of terrariums I have. And then I have um, automatic lights and everything. And so for lots of snakes and geckos, they don't need to be poked, you know, every day, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's, they're automatically getting misted. The lights are going on and off. I don't have to, you know, click 50, you know, light switches. And so on a day-to-day basis, most of what I just have to do is spray anything that's on paper towel, which is only a few animals, um, fill up gecko, you know, food bowls and, you know, little stuff looking around to make sure everyone's fine. So then what I do have to do is then on the weekends, you know, cleaning takes three, four, five hours or so um, to do deep cleanings on the things that need it, you know, birdcage, most of the other reptiles other than bioactive. Mm -hmm. Um, But then again, like the bioactives don't need to be cleaned. And so that takes a huge chunk of time away that I don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Um, so those really are time savers for sure. So then what I get to do with my collection, the time I get to spend with it is more the watching behaviors and, you know, tweaking the bioactives and all like kind of the fun stuff that isn't mm-hmm. the cleaning that takes forever. Yeah. Obviously there's some of that, but it's not as, it's not as intense as I remember it being in other facilities. Yeah. Especially when it's your own collection and you, you're your boss, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause I... I used to work uh, at a zoo, like volunteered at a zoo where I worked with their collection and my standards are much lower than theirs. So I was like, yeah, it's much easier at home. (laughs) So you made your first introduction to reptiles was these boas with airhead. And then it seems like now your collection really focuses on geckos. So where did you make that switch? And then tell me a little bit about these bioactive setups. I know you're passionate about like UVB lighting and how you care for them. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So when I got the Doomerals, I decided within a few months that I was like, all right, I want to do reptile breeding. Like I kind of got my toes in the water. I thought mm-hmm. I was going to be maybe happy with just having one or two animals. But now that I've got a couple, I just want more. But if I'm going to have more, you know, I'm poor. I mean, this doesn't really help right now. Um, but I want to at least pretend like my animals are going to work for their rent. Um, right. And so if I become a breeder, then at least I can sell some and they can make some of their money back and I can have yeah. more animals um, without it being just total loss, theoretically. Mm-hmm. And so because it's a lot of loss. Yeah. It's a- <laughs> and right now it's definitely a lot of loss. Um, yeah. I have an Excel spreadsheet of every penny that's been spent or gained on this and it's not it's not a pretty red zone but yeah that's that's spent columns a lot longer (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah but I when I so I got these boas but it takes like five years for boas to start to reproduce Mm -hmm. and so I was like okay what is something that has a much shorter time span and you know will keep me interested and is really fun and so when I went to little expos I was like, crested geckos are pretty cool. Should I do that? And mm-hmm. so I was looking around on different online forums and Facebook and all sorts of things. And I was like, no, like crested geckos are easy, but the market is super saturated and mm-hmm. they mostly are all the same color. Like, I mean, they've got different patterns and things, but they're all 
But if you don't know what you're looking at, yeah, if you don't know what you're looking at, I can't tell the difference between, unless it has dots and then I know it's a Dalmatian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wait, but gargoyle geckers are super cool because they have more colors. um, Their tails grow back. I think they're a lot cooler looking. They're a little Mm -hmm. more expensive, but still affordable enough to get into. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to do that. And that's worked out really well for me. Um, I spent a lot of money on my first couple of breeding adults, which I'm glad that I did because, you know, high-end adults produces more high-end babies. Um, And luckily they've produced very well for me. And this year I actually have double the amount of females I did last year. So that's going to be interesting really fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's when you look at your room and you're like, man, I should have got a place that was a little bit bigger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, I'll survive. Yeah. (laughs) So the gargoyles were something that I was really interested in because I I have been drawn to geckos, but I never really had them other than my brother's leopard gecko that didn't really Mm -hmm. count. I was not that interested in in leopard geckos. I'm still not. I don't know. I think they're weird. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I like all these tree geckos. And so I was like, these are beautiful. These will reproduce much more quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. They have many clutches a year. So this is something that can kind of pay for itself more. And so I did that. I'm still glad that I did that. I think they're super cool still. Um, And then in St. Louis this past year at NIRBC, I walked walked past Joe Hupp's gecko booth Mm -hmm. and I saw the most amazing little micro geckos I've ever seen in my life. And they are Strophorus spinigerous. Mm -hmm. And I saw them and I was like, I have to have them. And I asked for a price and he told me a price and I walked away (laughs) because I was like, I don't have any dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but then I'm gushing over these things all weekend. It was, it was a 1.3 adult group that were proven producers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was talking to different, different people about them. And then there was um, a pet store owner um, that, I got to know really well that weekend because he was good friends with um, Adeline Robinson, um, mm-hmm. who I was staying Who's with. The best. I hope she's listening because oh, I, I love her. Adeline. Yes. Just put that out in the universe. And I want to be her friend. Okay, <laughs> he's perfect. Um, she, we, so yes, this we should be an Adeline met... appreciation podcast. <laughs> yes, we actually met that weekend in person. We had talked online a bunch, and all of a sudden, I didn't have a hotel room for St. Louis, and I was like, "Hey, I know we've never actually met." but I really need a place to stay. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh yeah, cool. Let's do it. And we had a blast. Yeah. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) I met her at Daytona and she's just such a sweetheart. Mm -hmm. So we had a ton of fun. Um, And uh, so anyways, so like this, this friend of hers, Danny um, was like, tell you what, um, if you pay me back in babies, I will buy these for you. And I was like, deal. (laughs) That's a really good deal. And in my mind, I'm like, oh God, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. Um, (laughs) And I'm still panicking a little bit inside because I've yet to have eggs, but two of my females. But they're gravid, right? Yeah. Two of my females are. So one, actually one of the females did pass away Mm, and I did a necropsy because I was panicking because I was like, oh my God. Right. I've killed one. Um, Yeah. And so I, you know, I got a necropsy that really came up with nothing. Um, mm-hmm. He was not Which is the like, worst feeling. Pissed off at me or anything. Like it was fine. 
but yeah both of my other females are looking really like they're like globes they're Mm -hmm. massive right now so I am Mm -hmm. I was actually really hoping to wake up this morning and have eggs and be able to say I have eggs on this podcast (laughs) um (laughs) well you know what we'll do we'll like put like a pause in here and then tomorrow the day that you decide you have eggs we'll just like add it and be like guess what I have eggs and I'm like yeah it totally was the day we recorded it's kismet she's naming them all Dominique perfect (laughs) definitely for sure yeah so crossing my fingers on that one Hey, ignore the really shitty audio, but just want to say that Emily did get eggs, so we're very excited for her. I'm super passionate about them. They have a little arid enclosure. They're little Western mm-hmm. Australian micro geckos that are the weirdest little things, and mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with them, and I need more. So um, I spoke with Kiana Fox. Uh, she's in Canada. She's got a few species of, of stroferous that she's working with, but are you just working with the, I'm sorry, can you say the, the name again? Spinadurus. Okay, which is the one that's like golden and has the polka dot tail, correct? No, so they're the ones that are black with yellow eyes and then they've got, or they're gray with yellow eyes and then like a black like zigzag oh, down their yes. tail. Okay, gotcha. So what was it about that species versus the other stroferous that you were interested in? So I thought they were really cool because I'm really into geometric patterns in my mm, animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I really like like clean stripes on my gargoyles or like, really distinct blotches Mm -hmm. um I like the very stark saddling on my dumerals boas I just really like clean patterns Mm -hmm. and so this zigzag these zigzags are like perfect um and I was just really drawn to them I actually had an art minor in school as well that's so um, cool (laughs) because I was like well I really love art and I'm not going to keep doing it unless I have a class that like requires me to do it. So I did mm-hmm. that as well, but I'm really into geometric things. Um, and so that just, and like those yellow eyes are killer. Yeah. They're definitely like a really unique species. Mm-hmm. So what is your setup like with them? So they can all be kept together, which is a blessing because gargoyles cannot, I don't, I don't keep my pairs together year round, mm-hmm. even for gargoyles. Um, but they can all be in the same setup. Um, I have them in a essentially 20 gallon front opening tank. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a mostly arid setup. Their substrate is kind of a combination of topsoil and sand and Mm -hmm. charcoal um, with a drainage layer. They've got some like succulent like plants in there and some aloe. They have big plant lights, a huge UVB light. And they have um, a halogen bulb for for heat because they need kind of a 90 degree basking spot, Mm -hmm. um, which can kind of lead into my UVB stuff. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I was going to ask. So you, you know, when we were talking before the podcast, you said that UVB was something that you're very passionate about and you like think is important. So can you tell me kind of what is it that like what animals are you using UVB with? What have you seen to be the benefits? Why is that something that you're really focused on? Yeah, so UV light is something that everyone's kind of heard of and know generically that it's important, Um, Mm -hmm. but everyone focuses on UVB light, which Mm -hmm. is super important, and without it, uh, metabolic bone disease is one of the big things that will happen, and basically your animal will look like a ghost on an x-ray because all of their bones have lost density. That's Mm -hmm. because... Reptiles absorb vitamin D3 from UVB light, and then D3 is what allows them to absorb calcium. So without the D3 that they get from the UVB, they can't absorb 
calcium and then their body has to use the calcium from their bones. Mm-hmm. So that's super important for that reason. Um, and UV lights have to be changed every six months or so. Um, even if you see the lights still on, um, mm-hmm. that's just the visible light portion. So we can't see UVB light with our eyes. So there's also visible light in that light, but that doesn't mean it's emitting UVB. Mm-hmm. So those, the UV part burns out after six to eight months. So that you re- be replaced. Also, they don't stretch forever. <laughs> um, the animal has to be within like 12 to 18 inches or so to get any appreciable effect, depending on kind of the brand or whatever else, mm-hmm. including, um, time so you know after eight months you know maybe if they're right next to the bulb like you know one centimeter away or whatever (laughs) um maybe they'd get some but otherwise not so much um so uvb is important but uva is what i've learned more and more super important as well Mm -hmm. uva is at least as important for their well-being so we can't see uvb light or uv light at all it's not on our visible spectrum but Mm -hmm. there's actually increasing evidence that reptiles can see uv light Hmm. so if we don't provide uva it's kind of like making them partially colorblind Hmm. Um, they also absorb a lot of it um, in a way that it regulates a lot of their activities so things like social interaction psychology their diurnal movement um natural behaviors like digging, reproduction, anything like that, um, that's all regulated by UVA. And I've heard a lot of cases of animals that if they went off feed or weren't eating or just not doing well, like lethargic, but there wasn't really a reason why. Mm -hmm. And then that person added UVA light, they'd go back to normal. Hmm. And that's not like, you know, obviously I can't say that's going to be the case everywhere. Um, it's not, you know, a cure-all, but right. it's definitely an indicator that it's super important. And even though it doesn't cause some big disease that we can put a label on, it's super important for their well-being. Um, there's tons of bulbs like Zilla. This is not sponsored, but I love Zilla. Um, has- but if Zilla wants to sponsor us, you're more than welcome to. Exactly. <laughs> love it. Um, so I use their tropical series UVA, UVB bulbs because it's mm-hmm kind of like you're all in one it's got your uva and your uvb love that um and i have a uv meter actually at home that i can test to see to make sure that the uv is working Mm because obviously you can't tell just by looking at it um and they hold up to you know the amount of uv that it says on the box that it's giving and holds up to you know the distance etc um so i use those personally and i like them a lot and i use them on everything basically Um, The exception is ball pythons. So there was actually a study done on ball pythons showing that the animals that were given UV light and animals that weren't given UV light in two different groups, there was no change whatsoever in the amount of D3 concentration, Hmm. which makes sense because ball pythons spend all day in their little burrows and don't come out until the sun has gone down. So they don't see the sun at all and so they would have no need for uv light but that's not the case for all nocturnal animals because most nocturnal animals are like cryptic baskers which means that they're mostly hiding under a log or something but might have a their side exposed a little bit or a piece of their tail exposed a little bit so 
you know, we know that ball pythons don't need UV light, but that's the only one that I can say that doesn't. When in doubt, give it. Yeah, because it's not like it's going to negatively affect them. For sure. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So you're using that with your... um with your geckos, I assume, and your bioactive setups, mm-hmm. are you, do you have plans to move any of your animals that are currently in Iraq to uh, enclosures that would allow for more UV light and more natural lighting opportunities? Not currently. So the only species I currently have in racks are my ball pythons, which like I just said, don't need it. And right. my boas. And I have a Solomon Island ground boa. Mm-hmm. Um, those species do really well in my racks Mm -hmm. um and there's a chance that they probably get some filtered uv light um through the trees um but again they're kind of on the forest floor and so they might get a little bit of filtered light but not a ton and so if i moved them out of the racks which i could do um i would want to filter my uv light through screen so that only about like 20 to 30 percent would shine through and so that's like a lot of I mean, I hate to say it's a lot of work because it makes me sound like I'm just being lazy. No, but it's it's a lot of but, energy for for not a ton of right. of difference. Right. So it's not going to make a huge difference in those species' lives. Um, even gargoyle geckos are, you know, they're nocturnal and they live in pretty dense forests. And they, but they probably get some filtered light through the trees. And I do mm-hmm. have UV um on, I think there's one enclosure that doesn't have UV light right now because mm-hmm. I am ordering a new bulb. Um, but every all of those have UV lights on there. So like, I mean, if they didn't do so well in racks, I'd probably give it to them. But mm-hmm. because they feel so secure and are such good eaters in the racks versus when I had some of them in tanks, I kind of don't want to rock the boat there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you are using UVB, excuse me, just UV in general, I'm so used to saying UVB because that's mm-hmm. just what people say. Yeah. So when you're using UV light in these setups, are you putting them inside the um, enclosure or is it sitting on top of the screen? There's a combination. So for the gargoyle geckos, all of it sits on top of the screen. Um, and that's because they probably do get filtered light through the trees mm-hmm. it's not pure uv light and so through the screen does filter at about 50 percent, and they can climb um it, through all their sticks and all their you know all the things they can climb through to get close to it or further away from it because they're arboreal mm-hmm. um so i found that works really well um the i have two uv lights in my taiwanese beauty snake enclosure um at different ends because it's a pretty large enclosure um so I have those inside, but with like light covers. So obviously they can't touch the light. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly about, you know, how I can fit the lights in there. Cause the, the beauty snake enclosure is um, like PVC like mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah, I, that kind of just goes in there. <laughs> That's yeah. too. I didn't want to cut out a whole top piece and whatever mm-hmm. else, but it's short enough that that could work, but this was just a lot easier for me. Mm-hmm. So then it seems like the, the beauty snakes are kind of like an oddball in your mm-hmm. collection. What uh, drew you to them and, and why did you get your hands on this? So it was kind of an accident as <laughs> lots of strange things are. Um, I'm not really a colubrid person. Um, I'm in love with indigo snakes. Um, I mm-hmm. hope to have some of those someday. Um, I love dry mark on um, creepos and everything too. But these guys were... Um, 
on an, a Facebook ad before Facebook was cracking down on animal sales and things mm-hmm. saying, Hey, um, I've got these animals for sale. It's a, it's a pair, you know, unproven, but they're three years old, um, of pure Taiwanese beauty snakes. Um, and so I messaged him for more information just cause I was interested. Cause I was like, what the heck are these things? They're kind of mm-hmm. cool looking. And he was like, yeah, so this is probably one of the only unrelated pairs in the country. Most of them are outcrossed with like Chinese or whatever else, because there weren't a whole lot uh, in the country to start with. There was a bunch of the Columbus Zoo and the Zirkles, um, who are good, well-known colubrid breeders, right. uh, got their hands on most of those. And this was a project between them and Ariel Kudia or Ariel Kudia. I don't know how to mm-hmm. say his first name. Um, and so this guy ended up with them and then he had a lot of other projects going on and he wasn't as passionate about these guys and was deciding to sell them. Um, so he offered like a crazy good price, like only a couple hundred dollars for them, um, like each, I think, I don't remember, um, basically adult snakes that were basically written. They hadn't been brumated, so they probably weren't going to go last year and they didn't go last year, um, mm-hmm. but they, you know, were basically ready to go. And so... I was like, all right, I'll do it. And then the day I was going to go pick them up, um, he messaged and was like, oh my gosh, the female got stuck in her vivarium and she's like crushed. And I was like, excuse me? What? <laughs> he was like, I'm so sorry. Like it, you can still take them both if you are interested. If you're not, I totally get it, but I'll only charge you for the male. Mm-hmm. Um, just promise me you'll get her veterinary attention if you take them. And I was like, screw it like I'm just gonna take them because like they need it at this point yeah and so I took her into the ER the day after I got her because I was like she needs to chill for a little bit and she looked pretty swollen um and but like not as bad as he made it sound basically mm-hmm. and so we went in the next day and we did um we did some ultrasound we did x-rays and long story short she was basically just really swollen and she had one broken rib and that was it Wow. So she, and got she lucky. made full recovery. She was totally fine. She's, they have been actively breeding this year so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, no ovulation yet or anything, but I am very hopeful. So you've got like a couple of different species that you're working with. What is your general protocol for quarantine? You mentioned that earlier that you have a snake room, but you quarantine things separately. What is your, your method? Yeah. So I personally quarantine everything for a minimum of 90 days Mm -hmm. um it doesn't matter if it's a good friend or not or what species is species it is Mm -hmm. um boas i actually like to to go longer just because they're prone to things like ibd or whatever else um but minimum of 90 days they're in tubs um and for at least the first 60 days of that they are on paper towel with you know, a hide or something, but something just plastic that is very easily cleaned so that I can see if there's mites or something crazy off very Mm. easily. We are hitting our time, which is always crazy to me because I could really talk to you for a long time. So kind of tell me, what do you have planned for the season? Let me know. And and I want to hear a little bit about um, your isopods that you're working with. Yeah. So I am hopeful for these strophorous babies. Um, I am really excited to have hopefully double the gargoyle gecko babies that I had last year. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year I was selling babies 
on off a wait list before they were even hatched. It was crazy. Wow. So hoping, you know, to have at least decent success this year, that would be yeah. nice to continue. <laughs> um, so both gecko species, um, I have had, I have one ball python clutch that I'm hoping for. Um, I've mm. had one lock so far. What's um, that pairing? That is a pastel phantom female to a leopard lesser yellow belly male. Okay. And so both, what would that produce? That would produce, um, I'm looking for lots of leopard stuff, but mm-hmm. there's also something called a karma, which is basically another white snake, white ball mm-hmm. python morph, but not like blue-eyed Lucy complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it's five genes in there. Yeah. <laughs> so a whole lot of variety, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a clutch last year um, with the person who I bought her from. Um, and, but he is a virgin. So mm-hmm. um, I am. I thought you were referring to the person you bought him from oh. was a virgin. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm pretty what sure about he's, the not, he's got some kids. Okay. I, was, I was like, okay, interesting thing to bring up. Super relevant. I know. Yeah, I was like, okay, cool. Let's keep going. Yeah, but they've had one lock so far. So I'm hopeful. Um, and then in terms of my isopods, I do sell a ton of bugs. Last year, I made more money on bugs than I did on animals, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty crazy to me that this is such a big thing. But I mean, I recommend it to people because bioactives are so easy once they're set up and there's such a variety to isopods. I haven't really gotten into like specialty species that are like, you know, the rubber duckies that are like 20, 25 bucks a piece or whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. not really my I just jam. That scares me. I feel like <laughs> I would kill them. Right. Like it's so easy. And like, I just want hardy species that like mm-hmm. I can look at once a week. And that's what I do is I spray them like once a week and feed them like, you know, re- replenish their leaves and things like that like, once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have seven species um, that I've kind of pared down to. I might even pare down to six. We'll see. I haven't decided yet. Um, but like the fanciest things I've got are zebras and clowns isopods, um, mm-hmm. which are maybe a couple bucks a piece. But, you know, mostly it's easy stuff. And I, you know, in the thick of summer, I usually have like five or six boxes go out a week. And maybe this year will be more. Who knows? Um, but we will see. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. Cause I'm, I like, I like isopods. I think they're very cute. I'm just very bad at taking care of them. That's I don't know fair. what it is, <laughs> but I am not an isopod mom. Um, Ventilation. So, that's the answer. It's always the answer. Honestly, I think that's what it is. Um, <laughs> I'm looking back at my boxes like, hmm, what should we fix? Um, so before we wrap up here, um, can you, you know, give me some general advice if you had were talking to a younger girl who was interested in getting into reptiles or getting into the veterinary field what would you say to them I would say in terms of I'm going to separate those two things because they're very hard to put together a lot of the time yes (laughs) Um, I would say for some a younger girl getting into reptiles I would say don't be put off by the number of men in this industry. It can be hard sometimes. Um, I've gone into reptile expos with, um, well, it was my, this story is my ex-boyfriend, but you know, that he had never produced anything in his life. He just had literally one ball python. And at the end of our conversation, the, the guy at the, at the booth, you know, turned and sh- shook my ex's hand and said, have a good season. After we mm-hmm. just been talking about, you know, my animals, he had just been assuming. But don't get discouraged by that. Um, 
because you're capable of anything and more that they are. And if anything, they're just going to be blindsided by what you produce. And they're going to be like, oh, wow. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. You're going to be great. In terms of the veterinary field, I would say that go into it with eyes wide open. Know it's going to be really hard, not just in school, but once you're out of school, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's there, it's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, but also it's not. And you have to know that you got to know why you're doing it, because if you don't know why you're doing it, then, well, then why are you doing it? Because it's (laughs) a lot of work, you know, lots of people are like, oh, I'll be a vet. Like, you know, like I said earlier, like my, my family was like, oh yeah, like you'll, you'll just be a vet when you grow up. And that's not quite how it is. You really got to know why you're doing it. It's tough path, but it's very rewarding. Emily, I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me this evening. Um, Can you give us the rundown of where we can find you if we want to get in touch? Yeah. And so I've got um, a morph market. Um, So I am Reptivet LLC. Um, I have an Instagram, which is the underscore Reptivet. And then I have a Facebook page, which is also Reptivet LLC. We are working on a website and it's not up yet, but someday. Awesome. And I will make sure to tag all of your accounts in the comments uh, so everyone can, you know, come chat with you and and buy some of your ice pods. So uh, once again, thank you everyone for listening. This is the Modern Medusa podcast. I'm your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. I want to give a huge thank you to Joe at Port City Pet for helping us out and hosting this on his platform. And then once again, Emily, thank you so much for being with us this evening. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Talk at you next week.